Hi. You are listening to Ben's Book and Pronunciation Show. <laughs> this show is hosted by Ben Trengrove. Hello. <laughs> and also has Jake McMullen and Hi. myself. Hi. Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. And uh, Ben, I need to ask you, what books are in your life lately? Well, there's this great new book called Game Essentials with Cocos 2D. Um, it was written by this guy that I know, myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I wrote a book. Cool. Which that's is awesome. cool, that I is guess, because really cool. that's what the cool kids are doing, right? Yeah, I was pretty sure. But so, the thing is, I think you missed a. I think you missed a, an opportunity here, Ben. You you realize that mm-hmm. all the cool kids are actually writing books about Swift, right? Not not like Cocos Two D. Cocos Two D is like yeah, so, well, so last I started year. this like I started this before Swift. It's a very short book as well. So like it took Two me that long to write that. The Swift book's probably coming out in three years. So just look <laughs> forward to that. Put that in your calendar. You could do a second edition and update it to have Swift examples. I could. And I, I almost actually did that because halfway through writing, Coco's 2D iPhone got renamed Coco's 2D Swift. And I was like, oh, no. But I just stuck with Objective-C because I was like, it was too early. That was like quite a headache, actually. But um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you guys want to hear about, I don't know, the process of writing a book? or? Yeah, I'd love to hear yeah, about you the process of writing a book. So how how does it work? How did so how did you come up with this idea of writing a book, and how did you start? So this idea this idea came from um, uh, when I was at Shiny Things. So at Shiny Things, we used Cocos Two D. Yep. And I we would get you know new hires, and a lot of them had experience in iOS, but not really Cocos Two D. It's very hard to find someone that does, although they do exist. Um, and so we always had like a stack of books we just collected over the time, and I always found that like the new guys would, I guess, sort of start the book and then get bored of it after a few chapters and then just start messing around, which is also how I do it. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to write one that's just the the basics or like it just has a real overview. It's quite short just to get you the basic idea. And then from there, you just mess around and do whatever you want. So it just shows you like an overview of the kind of stuff you can do. has a couple of tutorials and then you just go for it from there. Um, and so that's what I did. That sounds great. I'm not sure I'm a great writer. I'm just going to put that out there. But that's what a publisher's for. So about, I don't know, I guess I'd sort of started writing maybe a chapter. I might have been halfway through the second chapter. And then just by complete coincidence, a publisher emailed me and said, hey, we're writing a Cocos, or we want to write a Cocos 2D book. Do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, I've already started. <laughs> so <laughs> That's kind of that's that was, kind of freaky. Yeah. I know. So they where, found me on Stack Overflow. Where were you Overflow. storing your, your draft? Were you like, were you storing it in <laughs> Dropbox or no, probably just Google on my Drive? Computer. They're watching everything you do. Yeah. So they found me on Stack Overflow because I used to reply to a lot of questions on there about Cocos 2D. Uh, I found you on Stack Overflow the other day. I was looking yeah? something up. I'm like, how on earth do I do this? And when I'm reading the answer. I'm like, that's stupid. Who wrote that? Oh, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> no, I lied. What it was, was it? Answer. Thank you. I can't oh, okay. even remember. Um, yeah. So anyway, they found me on Stack Overflow because I was, there's like a, um, a ranking you get. So if you click on a topic, you can see the top answer is for that topic. And I think I was third. Um, and I guess they tried the first two and then they didn't work. So they came to the number three. 
which was me. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Hey, did you put that on the back of your book? <laughs> no, I didn't. Actually. I was number three on Stack Overflow. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm number four now as well because like, oh. while I was writing the book, the Stack Overflow answering kind of died out. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Why, why would you why waste your, your nuggets of wisdom on the, you know, yeah, the they got paid for Stack that. Overflow when you, they, you put it in your book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, you get a publisher and you get a contract which has a whole pile of terms in it and you got to read it carefully. Do they give you lots of money to go off and write? Like, do you get a, what's it called? A uh, An advance. An advance. Yeah. Did you get an advance that where you could just go and disappear to some little cottage in Europe for six months? I did get an advance. So the, my advance was a thousand US dollars. So like I've hit the big time. Um, I'm now just retired basically. <laughs> but you get the advance, at least in my case. I don't know. Maybe this is because I'm a noob author, but you get the advance when you've actually finished writing the book, but before they publish it. Right. So not so far in advance. So I actually still haven't got it like because it takes a while to transfer internationally as well. So anyway, hmm. I kind of wanted an advance at the start, but you know, they'd never hmm. seen me write or anything. So I guess they don't just throw out money, which is probably smart for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what about the writing process? Is it, do you, do you, do you sit down in Word? Is that how you write a book? Yeah, so they use um, a template that runs in either OpenOffice or Word, not Pages, okay. unfortunately. Uh, and so they've got a whole pile of styles. And so they'll have my publisher's packed publishing. So they had packed heading, packed body, packed whatever, image. Um, and what they do at the end is they run a script on each chapter which takes that OpenOffice file or whatever and converts it to a PDF that's laid out how their books are laid out. Yeah, yeah. okay. So that was that was cool. I fought with the template a lot, though, so I would have preferred something like Markdown or something that didn't require me to use a full-on word processing app because yeah. all formatting is stripped. Like, there's no point in using a full-on word processor right. because if you accidentally, like, make something bold because it looks better, it's not going to be bold in the final thing unless you add the, like, bold tag. So it takes a lot more thought. Yeah, And it also kept like stripping my images and moving them around. So you send the chapter off and it comes back saying, did you mean to put an image here? And there's two images here. And I'm like, no, that's just like the image has jumped to the next image for some reason. And so I was constantly rearranging images and things like that. So that was quite frustrating. What a pain. So it was your job to, to produce the images as well? And were they screenshots and or like... Uh, yeah, so you know, screenshots um, you do yourself obviously, because you like write a dummy or you write a tutorial app and you take screenshots as you go and they go in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, diagrams, you could draw yourself, but they redraw for you. Oh, nice. Which is cool because I'm not a good drawer. Um, yeah. well, and then and if that you way use, there'd be like a, a consistent style across all their publications. Yeah. Um, and then if you use like, you know, something from online or something, you have to source out rights, which was fine. Yeah. So I did that for a couple of my images. I got them from the Cocos 2D documentation. And they were cool. They said, yeah, go for it. Use them. So that was that's how you do that. Uh, and you do one chapter at a time. So you do a chapter, send it off, and then they'll come back to you with um, comments, like track changes, and you approve them all and send it back. And that happens a couple of times. So how are they editing it? Um, they use OpenOffice as well, or Word. No, but I mean, in terms of the content, do they um, check that? Oh, like, yep. Do they have another, another Cocos 2D expert? checking to see if what you're saying makes sense technically or do they just assume yes, that's a given and 
They're just editing your language. No, so they have both. So you have a copy editor or like a general editor who goes through and, you know, puts a comma there or rearranges this sentence or stuff like that. And then they have a technical editor who did know Cocos 2D and would go through and like query this or say, oh, you can do that. You just have to do it this way or should we rearrange this? Or... And that was really good. The, he was actually technical and understood it. It wasn't like you were dealing with a general technical editor who could like program but didn't really know Cocos 2D. The guy actually knew what he was talking about. So it'd be kind of like code review then. Yeah, it is. And he also goes through and does the, the tutorial. Like he goes mm. through the book and step by step what you did to make sure he ends up with the same thing you got and things like that. So that was good. So oh. hopefully the tutorials actually work. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I kind of want that in life generally. Someone to read everything that I write, including my code, and make constructive feedback and make it sound better and work better yeah. before I have to like. Tell you what, you can pay me and I'll do it for you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, paying. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so that was actually really good. So at the start, I kind of put a lot of effort into trying to edit my own work. Like, you know, I'd reread it multiple times and think about, should I add a comic here or there? Mm. But by the end, I realized that's their job. <laughs> so I would just write it, read it to make sure it actually made sense. You know, I wouldn't just send off something that completely made no sense and just send yep. it off and they would come back and say, like, you know, there should be a comic here or something. And then you just do the ones that are... They recommend because they're the experts. I figured I was sort of double editing, which didn't really need to do in the end. Which, so that was good. And that must have been, um, it must have flow, flowed easier. Yeah. My language yeah, is definitely. not flowing easily at the moment. <laughs> right. You haven't used the word drawer yet. So you're doing okay. Oh, did you have to do your own drawing? Are you a very good drawer? <laughs> That's what Sorry. Ben said earlier. He's not, he's not a very good drawer. No, I'm not. That's why I don't even know that word. <laughs> Wait, I mean, I don't know the proper word. Well, it's either artist or illustrator, probably. Mm. Yeah. But isn't there, like, painter for someone who paints? Yeah, but that kind of comes under artist. And depending on this, what you're actually doing, it can be an ilus- you can be an illustrator. If you're painting illustrations, then you're an illustrator. Okay. As opposed to, you don't, like, painters paint paintings. paintings. And drawers draw drawings. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> can you be a sketcher? Draw drawings. Uh, not really a sketch artist. artist. Sketch artist. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah. Ben's book and pronunciation show. That's it. And now the book's out there. The book's on Amazon and you can get a printed version. Printed version. Yeah. It's a real book. You, you can kill a tree. Yes, you can kill a tree. I'm sure it uses recycled paper. It probably Previously is Amazon tricks. print on demand. I'm just guessing. They print a lot of books on demand now. All right. Yeah, they do. I just want to go because, well, I genuinely actually want to know how to do Cocos 2D. Ah, well, hopefully my book will help with that. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read it, and it will teach me, <laughs> and then I can do Cocos 2D. Yay! Yeah. And like the same theories apply to SpriteKit, so you could probably also do SpriteKit, like with the knowledge. Cool. I mean, the API is different, but you know. Yeah, but they used a lot of the same ideas and stuff. Yeah, they did. Cool. I st- I yeah. have a long running idea for a game. I st- I just want the time to try it. In Cocos Tiddy or is it Where's it. the Duck? No, it was that was that was an idea for a game. Yeah, I might still do that one. No, I was I gonna I was gonna do the illustrations for you. I was yeah. going to illustrate it. That would be great. We should still do that. Yeah, Where's the Duck? Hmm. I, ha- I think I have a sketch here somewhere around the place that okay. I did for you at a Cocoa Heads once. Let's do it. Hmm. Let's do Where's the Duck. No, my um, my game's gonna be uh, Wozlo the Wombat. Oh, not Where's the Duck. 
Where's Ducks Not Good Enough for Waslow the Wombat? Oh, no, I did both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to become a game studio. Okay. I'm not. Okay. At all. Sure. So let's move on to actual mobile couch. How about how about that? How's that sound? Do we have yeah, comics? Now we're done plugging. Do we, do we have feedback? Uh, so do we have follow-up? We do. Um, last time we spoke, we spoke about Test Flight. We did. And I don't know how many people have contacted us directly with feedback for the show, but I've heard from people who have listened to the show and used Test Flight, or I've also run into some other Test Flight issues we didn't touch on. Oh, so let me tell you about this, by the way. Uh, we, we talked about that at that Test Flight on that episode, and then last week I had crazy amounts of issues with Test Flight, as if Test Flight was all like, well, you like me? Try me now. And so now I, so last week I had issues where builds just wouldn't install. So you'd get like, you'd, they'd come up on test flight and you'd press the update button or the install button or whatever. And they'd do the little, you know, filling out the progress bar and they'd get right to the end and then they'd go alert, cannot be installed. Try again later. And it would just happen on every device all the time until I uploaded a new build with nothing changed except the build number, the build number, because you have to update that. Yeah. Hey, pro tip for when you want to, something's not installing it tells you the error in the device console oh, there you go so the other the other issue that i came across uh with test flight last week was that for some reason builds would just start crashing on launch for no reason at all uh nothing to do with my code like my code was fine i was installing it on all my devices and testing it out before i pushed it to test flight to make sure we install fine push it to test flight install it from test flight to my devices works fine push it to my beta testers and have them install it on their devices. And some of them would work fine and then some of them would just get crashes on launch. And then the next build that came out after that, trying to fix the problem, other random people would get the crashes and the people who originally got the crashes would probably not get the crashes, but maybe they would get the crashes. That's bizarre. Yep. Did you get a crash report? No, no crash reports because it's crashing on launch. And so my crash reporter doesn't give me anything. So I couldn't like I, I use Crashlytics for crash reporting and it would pick up nothing because it's not it's not actually pe- like typically most of those crash reporters don't pick up launch problems because it lo- it comes up too much. They load properly. Yeah. Yep. Um. And so you rely on the ones that come from the device because Test Flight doesn't do crash reports, which mm. is kind of stupid. That's something that we didn't cover. I don't think. So I asked for some crash. I asked for a crash report from somebody that I was able to get that knew how to get them. I didn't mm. have to explain how to do that. And the crash was like random and full of zeros and didn't, wasn't helpful at all. Mm. So yeah, I, like I wasn't going to be able to do anything about it. So yay test flight. Yay test flight. Did you um run your app and release? That's a like really common one. Yeah, everything was fine. I was I was testing in release at the time instead of debug because I was testing in-app purchases because my debug profile is set up with a different yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, is set up to use a different app from the te- from uh, the store. And yeah, it would just it was just yeah, it wouldn't work. Just crashes on some people and then I sent out a build yesterday and uh, it's all fine. It's so clearly the problem has gone away. Bizarre. Very bizarre. The other one I've hit before is code optimizing and it optimizes too much and then it just crashes. And that generally shows up if you run and release instead of debug and you just turn the code optimizer off and suddenly everything works. So definitely a bug. by default, the release config has a flag to the compiler to optimize the code. Yeah, and debug doesn't. And debug doesn't, yeah. Mm. The other thing I've run into in a similar kind of situation is where on my devices, I've run incremental versions in between the released one 
and the new release. And those incremental versions have kind of migrated core data or changed written user defaults or, you know, done something to the state of my device so that the later one then runs properly because it's like expecting something to be there that is there. And I forget that the previously released version didn't leave the device in the state that my incremental versions did. Does that make sense? Right. And so then yep. I release something and people get crashes on launch because, I don't know, it's trying to read a user defaults, which isn't there, or something weird. Crash on launch is annoying. Crashes on launch are annoying, especially mm. when they're not your fault. Mm. Mm-hmm. Third-party systems, <laughs> they're great. <laughs> they're fantastic. Um, so the other thing I heard someone run into using um, test flight, which I guess we didn't cover, but it's probably worth spelling out for if anyone else runs into it, mm-hmm. um, is there's this distinction between uh, internal and external builds. And if you're releasing to an internal testers, you don't need to wait for review. Yes. But if you're releasing to external, you do. Yes. Unless you're submitting an update that's that doesn't have any significant changes from one that's already been through review. Did we not cover that? I thought we, we did cover that. that. I'm just yeah. recovering, oh, right. recapping. Okay. Yep. There's another thing in there. If you bump the version number at all, then yes. you don't get an opportunity to tell iTunes Connect or TestFlight right. that there's no significant changes. It basically assumes if the version number changes, then there are significant changes and it will trigger a new review. Right. So that's that's the difference between the long and short version number. Yes. That's, like- in your, uh, that's in your uh, P list, your info P list. So you have a long version number and a short version number, and the long version number I think is your is essentially your build number. I think it could be. Yeah, I think it's around. actually labelled build number now in yeah Xcode six. And so then you've got yeah, well, because you've got now you've got it in that uh, general tab. Yeah, general tab. But previously it was just in the um, P list view. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can. So you'd your build number is separate to your version number. So you have a version number that. Uh, you increment that's kind of your released, your public version. Yeah. So it'd be like, for instance, the current gift wrapped one is going to be 1.1. 1. 1. Yeah. Uh, and as you do testing, you increment your build number, not your version number. Because if you increment your version number, it thinks that you've got a new version. Therefore, you've got significant changes. Therefore, you need to put it through review. Yeah. Yes. I, I didn't realize that if you do that, you don't even get asked the question. So, because I s- submitted builds where there's that question that appears is, has anything significant changed since last time yeah and i say no no nothing nothing's changed at all mm. yeah well I, and that's the thing well it's, it's not so much that nothing has changed it's that it's asking you if there's been significant changes and typically if you're making significant changes you're probably going to increment the built version number anyway for public reasons i guess yeah yeah but yeah um and what else so there's also been some changes to test flight since we spoke about it there are now yeah. groups. Yeah, so you can use groups now. And I think that also now means that you can have multiple versions available simultaneously. Right. That you can upload yeah. a version for a specific group or subset of your testers. Yeah, so you can put your external testers into groups. I don't think it works on internal testers. Maybe it does. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so you can put your testers into groups. Let's just use the gen- generic testers just mm-hmm. in case I'm wrong. So you could have like a group for your primary beta testers and maybe a group for press in case you've got people on your yep. testing your external testers that are press and so you could then that means that you can send out uh, incremental builds to your, uh, your your actual beta testers and only send uh, specific definitely working uh, betas to your uh, to your, your press so like mm. pre-releases and stuff like that 
Yeah, so that's cool. And the fact that that feature was added, you know, so quickly after, I guess, the website for Testlight went away and and it started. Like, I, I kind of feel like it's obviously still in active development. I was yeah. worried that Apple might do kind of something they've done in the past where they, you know, get a third-party technology, bring it in-house, and then it kind of just stops getting worked on. Yeah. It seems like this is not the case, that Testlight is obviously still under I think, development. I think that, like iTunes Connect in its current state is not the final state that they want for it. It's still obviously missing some of the the features that they've announced for it, like like analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that they're finished with it yet. And I think TestFlight still has a long way to go. I, I, I'm hoping that Apple actually does realize that because TestFlight is by no means perfect. And if anybody got the, uh, the idea from us uh, in the last episode that it is, then uh, I'm sorry to burst your bubble because <laughs> it's not. There are plenty of bugs, and most of them like are pretty easy to work around. Oh, that you know, this build is just not installing for people. Okay, well, I'll push it, push another one with a new version number, and it'll be fine. Mm. Bam, done. You know, and I've I've run into that problem twice now, and it's worked every time. Just increment the version number, push a new build up, no changes at all, works fine. It's a little bit more of a struggle if you have you're having issues where you're like people are crashing on launch and it's just not working for them, but. I, like we're it's it's really early days for test flight like test flight is probably in beta itself hmm. so you know I, I think it's one of these things where it's really good and it's got so many so much potential and so much uh so many better things going for it than a lot of the other ones uh that are out there but at the same time it's still kind of you know young and hmm. it's going to run into problems hmm. i think it's reasonable yeah so that's all the follow-up i think i have that's all the follow-up i have but um speaking of newness New things. Um, we've got a new version of Swift. Oh, of course we do. That's exciting. Isn't it like 1.2 now or something? It is 1.2. Mm. And a new version of Objective-C. Is it? Yeah, They're there is a new version it. of Objective-C as well. So there are so many things that I'm excited about about this news. Um, one is just that we have, um, is it out-of-bound releases? Out-of-band releases. So typically Apple will revert, you know, update language maybe at WWDC each year. You get a new release of Objective-C with some new features. Or yep. Here we are, just, what, February, random point in the calendar, and there's a new a new release. So it kind of is exciting that they're not waiting. Like, And it's actually really weird, right, because we're waiting on Apple uh, at, to release 8.2, which is the version that's coming with WatchKit. Right, yep. But the new version of Swift and the new version of Objective-C, I guess, coming with 8.3 and so now if you go to your developer the developer center. developer center and you look you go into where you've got so you've currently got 8.1 and now you've got like then you've got 8.2 beta then you've got 8.3 beta which is crazy yeah yeah that's a lot of gigabytes of downloading things yeah um hence i haven't installed the latest uh swift yet i I've, do hear that there is a lot of improvements to swift yeah i'm i'm super excited about that so, so I, I saw a tweet on the day that it got released, something about uh, how Swift is now has like eighty percent less crashes, um, according to a like a test that's that's on GitHub. I'll have to find it and put oh, it in cool. the show notes. So they have this kind of like set of I guess unit test type things that test various problems with Swift, and um, apparently it's passing eighty percent more than it was before. That's fantastic, mm. and heaps mm. more features as well. So some of the nicest bits uh, you can. There's now a syntax for unwrapping multiple optionals at once nice so if you've got yeah three variables all of which are optional and all of which you need to be non-nil in order to call a method for example 
in one line you can check that they're all non-nil. Didn't we? Them. Didn't we try that? Didn't we talk about this before? So we came, where up, we came up with the yeah. switch thing where you can right. Yep, there was a technique of using a switch where you could switch on the non-nil on those three variables. Yeah. Um. So you could have a switch with one case that was the three variables and non-nil, and then a default case because you have to have a default, and the default case could just like log something to say this should never happen. Still a little bit cumbersome, not quite as bad as three nested if lets. Yep. Um. But now there's an actual language level syntax for doing that so you can do you can essentially do if let whatever equals whatever i yeah i've I've already lost myself and i don't remember the syntax ben do you yeah it's just comma if let x equal x well unoptional x equal to optional x comma y you know you just keep going and then you can also put a where on the end which is also cool and the where is um for doing like checking the type is it no you can do conditionals in there so there was a really uh known problem with swift was um, like say you had A, B, and C, all optional. So you would go if let A equals A, if let B equals B, if let C equals C. Then you would have to compare, say you wanted only to get in here if B was less than C. So then you had a fourth if, if B is less than C, then you did something. Mm. So there was still, yep. you know, you got yep. all those ifs. So now you can even reduce yeah. your conditionals yeah, into so you- that first line. Oh, cool. Right. That's awesome. Really cool. That is cool. That's fantastic. Because I kept wanting to do that with if let. I kept wanting to do if let, you know, this optional was non-nil and then some other logical expression. Um, and, yeah. of course, you couldn't do that. But now you can, right? Now you can, which is very cool. That's fantastic. And they're also evaluated left to right. So your your where isn't going to trigger and cause a crash if, like, B exists but C doesn't. So it'll check A, B, yep. and C first and then do your where. So it works with essentially like a proper if statement then. Can you wrap yep. anything? Can you wrap stuff in like parentheses and then get like, like you can with maths and then get like kind of. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can. It's just a normal level of logic. Yeah. You know, normal if logic yeah, cool. conditional. Awesome. Which is how you want it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, what, were the, what were the other exciting new changes? Um, the changes to let, which is what I thought was really good. Oh, yeah. So the problem here was that you couldn't. Um, let means that it's an immutable type. It can't change once it's assigned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And up until now, you've had to assign a value where you declare the variable. So you say, let name equals Jake. That's cool. Name will always be Jake, never change. But if you wanted to just say, let name and then have a conditional block with two potential options mm-hmm. where name would either be initialized as you know Jake or Jelly, you couldn't do that with let because um, you have to assign it. Whereas now you can, yeah? Yeah, that, I think yeah. that's what I read. Yeah, so now cool. it's it's exactly what you said. So you, you said that let was, once the variable is assigned, it can never change. That's what it is now. So you don't have to assign it straight away. If you don't assign right. it and then try and use it, that's a crash. So it's just once it's assigned, it comp- it's now, yeah. Yeah, the compiler should pick that up. I haven't tested it. You would think it would. That you try and use it before it's assigned, yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. Um, and then the change to the big, the change to Objective C, which is interesting, is that there are some now language features in Objective C to annotate methods to indicate whether it's possible for arguments to be nil or not. Oh, yeah, that's or right. Return types to be nil or not. Really? So that when you're bridging from Swift, you don't get ah. optionals everywhere. You yeah, only okay. get optionals where it actually makes sense for them to be optional. Well, that makes sense then. It also helps if you're just a plain old Objective C developer because the compiler will now pick up when you're passing a nil into a non nullable parameter yeah okay. so theoretically goodbye other if null returns checks unless it's dynamic then it can't pick it up 
but that's cool. And then they also have said that compilation times are improved. And oh well, yeah, we got incremental compilation source kit crashes. Well, that's the thing. Like eighty percent less crashes. This is eighty percent less time that I can spend giving you crap about uh, about using Swift all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the incremental um, compiling is going to be huge because. Uh, so I just finished on Friday. I was submitted to the App Store a Swift project I've been working on, and it's not huge. It's not like the biggest app in the world, but it's not trivial either. But compile times were getting stupid. Just at like, yeah, every time you have to, you know, make a single line different, compile again, and just wait for the whole thing to build. Whereas hey. now, um, yes, so it should only compile the classes that change rather than. Like Objective C does. Right, yes. And even Objective C only got that in like maybe four, I feel like. iOS 4 is when we got that. Really? I don't remember. Yeah, I'm fairly fairly certain there was a time in iOS's history where you, whenever you built to your device, you would have to build everything. Everything all the time. I can't remember when it was. Listeners, help me out. Please, please, please. Thank you. So speaking of um, things building really quickly. Swiftly, you might say. Swiftly. Well, <laughs> or having a really quick reaction. Okay. Did you see those the videos introducing React Native? Wow, that was a that was a really random segue, man. Well, it's not. So this is actually on the topic. You pulled it off. Though. You pulled it off. <laughs> so moving on from Swift briefly, diverging, just jumping all over yeah, the place okay. randomly. Um, I had been meaning to look into this React Native thing for a while because I've heard people talking about it, and it seems. Interesting. I actually heard um, I've got a friend who's uh, does a lot of um, front end web development and back end web development, um, and he's been using React for web apps for a while and recommending it. And I looked into it a little while ago, and it kind of hurt my head a bit. And I gave up and decided to try Angular instead because it made more sense to me. Because React is weird. So I think we need to actually like elaborate on what, what react, react is, is because so, so react- far all you've done is just basically say that it's weird it is weird well <laughs> that's enough that's the definition of react it's weird um okay so react ha- began its life as a framework a javascript framework for doing front-end web development right and i guess in some ways similar to angular or ember or name some other front-end yeah, framework. so these these are the JavaScript frameworks that uh, that basically take control of uh, like of views in the way that I guess is different to most to to kind of core level like jQuery or whatever JavaScript frameworks, which kind of so they do more for you in that regards in like views and stuff. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and Ember and Angular have this uh, are having common. The fact that they're model view controller design pattern, right? So what they try and do, and that's all JavaScript, right? So I'm just talking about client side. So basically, you have model JavaScript objects that represent the stuff you're dealing the with. The data, yep, yep. Your views are your HTML pages, mm-hmm. and the controller is a layer of JavaScript, which basically the framework will then synchronize changes in your model with changes in the view, and vice versa. Um, React is not a model view controller framework. And in fact, what React, I think, and I'm not an expert, so I'm probably going to get this entirely wrong. What it's The problem it's trying to solve is more about um, how do you develop front-end web apps so that they're modular 
And so you can have standalone self-contained components. Yep. So that if you use, say you want to add a little search box to your page that has some appearance and some behavior, like when you type in it, you know, it'll offer to autocomplete or it'll pop up or, you know, some behavior. If you want to add it to one app and then subsequently down the track, you want to use it in a different app, how do you make it so that all the stuff you need for that, so the CSS and the JavaScript behavior and the markup can be kind of moved around in a nice portable package? Yep. So I think that is the problem that React is trying to solve. Oh, it's also... Um, React is also trying to abstract away the end. I don't know what the proper word is, but the browser. It's trying to abstract away the browser you use at the end. So you don't have to worry about IE, Firefox, whatever. And then they, that's the point. So they extended that concept to Android, iOS. Like you don't worry about yeah. where it's going at the end. So, yeah. So the whole idea that I've got here, like I'm looking at the React page on GitHub. So um link will be in the show notes. The examples that they have, because this is just React, this is not React Native, so this is the JavaScript one for front-end web. They have a few examples. One is a very basic component, which is just a text, like a hello message. One is like a a counter, which just increments every second. There's a to-do list and like a really simple markdown editor. Mm -hmm. And none of these examples are any more than about maybe 50 lines of code, probably less. This looks like maybe 30 which includes some markup for like marking up the, the page. So that's the thing that breaks broke my head a little bit was that I didn't understand the structure that um, I kind of am so used to model view controller. I get that structure. Yep. Whereas React um, is attempting to solve a different problem of making things modular and Ooh. componentized. And so it kind of puts everything together. It looks a bit like you've got markup and behavior but it also appears like it's trying to do a whole like a stateless type thing like so you're not having to worry about state with your views and stuff like that yeah it, it it's reactive which i guess is where the name kind of comes yeah. from and so react native as ben said is trying to bring this to ios and android um and they have and one of the most compelling parts about the demonstration of this is that they've got a declarative syntax for describing views native views on ios so ui views and ui labels and ui t- um, table view cells yep and you write javascript code to describe the layout of the elements on your in your view and you can change the javascript and reload your app at runtime so you don't have to recompile at all you don't have to stop the app the app continues running whilst the javascript is reloaded and then that javascript re- is re-executed rebuilds your Views. And it causes your views to change. So if you just want to like change a label so it's left justified instead of centered or right justified or different metrics or whatever, you can change it as much as you like and don't have to compile and run once. It's just like, it's awesome. So it's kind of like it, it makes um the build and run kind of cycle that we do in native like Objective-C or Swift seem yep. antiquated and old and like incredibly slow. Mm. Um makes me think that I want to fire up uh, another R word, reveal, um, to see check out their latest version. I haven't looked at it uh, since they've added really good. auto layout stuff as well. Yeah, really good. I use it um, all the time. Can, can you edit more stuff at runtime now so that you actually can change things in your app through reveal? Or is it, it still, still can't persist. 
Like you right. can change yeah, a lot of stuff, persist. but it won't persist back. So you can change stuff to try out different values for things. Yeah. And yep. then you've got to remember, okay, when I set it to this, that was right. Well, now so I'll go back to my code and change it to that. It's like it's basically like your web inspector if you're doing yeah. web front end web yeah, development. Exactly. It, it doesn't persist unless you're using I think if you use Chrome, they have a way of persisting Persist, now. Yeah. But it's yeah, anyway. Uh you you can um you can basically test things, make sure it works, change colors, change the position yeah. of stuff. And then when you've got it right. When you've got it right, you can just um, transfer it to your transfer source. Transfer that yeah. uh, by I, hand to your source code. I think I'm going to get back into using that as part of my like daily. I guess previously I've used Reveal when I've hit a problem mm. and I've wanted to try and figure out what's going on. Whereas seeing this demo for React made me realize that it would be incredibly awesome if there was a tool that just let me, as part of everyday development, just do the sort of layout. Adjust your layout adjust and things stuff. In, yep. To a running app rather than in a storyboard or in mm-hmm. code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of storyboards, how does Re- like React does, obviously isn't going to no play well with storyboards. No. So how does that make you feel about storyboards? I don't think I'm going to rush out and use React. Right. One of the things they discussed in the two um, sessions on it, so there was a recently a confer- React conference and the keynote, the opening keynote, and then the opening session on the second day were both about React Native. And one of the things they mentioned there was their, they rejected the notion of write once, run anywhere. So this was really interesting coming from Facebook because they're the people behind React. Um, they're basically saying, in their opinion, um, Web technologies, you're just never going to get anything close to the native experience. You, it's I've just heard that an impossible before, dream. They've talked about that in in previous in other things, previous well. things. Yeah. yeah. So they were really, really sort of hammering on that, saying the the idea of writing once, running anywhere is uh, is just impossibility. It's not going to make sense. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but instead, what they aim to do with React Native is to um, learn once, use everywhere, something like that. Um, so the idea is that if you're familiar with the React approach to doing your web apps, then you already know the React approach and you can use React Native and you're familiar with the tool chain, you're familiar with the the build system, you're familiar with the kind of um, even layout, for example, on React on the web. Instead of using CSS, they're advocating using um, a JavaScript-based language for styling and laying out your page. Hmm. And they've ported that to iOS as well as Android. So you can use the same, exact same sort of way of laying out. So instead of using CSS on the web to say float left or float right and using native controls on iOS to do the same, like auto layout constraints, for example, they're not using auto layout on iOS and they're not using CSS on the web. Instead, they're using their layout um, framework everywhere. Right. So I guess they're... The, for the person it would make the most sense to is someone who's bought into using React on the web, then it makes sense to use it for native as well because it's, you know, you have already learned it, you can apply it everywhere. I'm not sure I'm ready to go out and learn it for doing native apps when I'm not also using it for the web. Like maybe hmm. next time I need to learn a web framework, I might look at it and then and then there would be that potential of using it on multiple platforms that would appeal. But um, it's really interesting. It does sound interesting. And I, I, I mean, I haven't looked into it so far yet because it's so busy. Well, I don't think it exists yet either, right? So I think there are these presentations 
Yep. And at the conference, they told the attendees that they would have access to a private GitHub repo straight away and that they would be open sourcing it to the public at some later point. And yeah. I did a quick looking around and I don't think it's open source yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I could still have watched the these presentations, obviously, but I haven't. And, you know, because that does mostly because I'm busy, but I, it, it does like the, the idea of it sounds immensely useful for mm. many things. It's certainly completely different. I'm, I'm finding it interesting. I'm, I'm kind of been watching a bunch of stuff lately and finding it really interesting. Mm. And it's so- kind of confronting my worldview a bit mm. going, okay, so there's a completely different way of doing things that has, a whole heap of benefits, maybe. What Facebook have mean? actually been doing a lot with iOS recently. So, history lesson: Facebook was the company behind three twenty. They were, uh, which was probably one of the first iOS frameworks, yeah. third party. And eventually, it just got so bloated and large and stupid that it kind of went the way of the dinosaurs and got replaced with Nimbus, which was much better in terms and, of its modularity and, and open sourced and i don't think by facebook like they didn't they weren't behind it i think it was the same dude but it wasn't it, it wasn't, wasn't facebook. facebook no um but recently facebook have started doing a bunch of stuff with with ios uh with ios libraries and providing libraries and now they've actually got quite a lot going and facebook own pars right facebook do own pars yeah and um the paper app which was sort of is developed by facebook uh uses Pop is it? Is that the animation? Yeah, framework? Pop. And there's an, there's another thing that's behind it which I'm Async UI Kit, Async Display Kit. That's it. Um, and React Native uses it as well. Yeah, and so it like and it's set up so that you know it can do a lot a lot of things uh, in a much faster manner than what you can do with just straight up UI Kit. Mm. Um, because a lot of people are using things like um, Quartz Composer and stuff like that to to create uh, like a storyboard like actual storyboards not like storyboards for ios apps where you kind of you're laying out your views and you're designing all your views and stuff like that but then also giving them uh kind of dynamic animations and stuff like that so you can preview an app without actually having to uh you know build an app Hmm. um and uh you know it it was really it really makes these lovely things but a lot of the time ui kit doesn't actually keep up with that because it's not designed in such a way and it's really mm. hard to make it kind of work and so this uh, async display kit is that what it was called anyway they yep. um it's designed to make it work so that it's just uh you just basically can set it up and it does it does it a lot easier for you mm. and does things you can basically create uh you can basically make adjustments to views in different threads which makes a massive amount of difference yeah so i'd recommend people watching those videos they're really yeah. interesting. Indeed. The other video that I'm halfway through and that I definitely recommend uh, is a presentation. Where was this presentation? Realm.io yeah, is where Realm. I'm looking at it, um, which is a mobile database replacement for SQLite and Core Data. Yep. But there is a um, presentation there by um, Andy. I apologize for the pronunciation because I'm not quite sure, but I think it's Matushak. And the presentation is Controlling Complexity in Swift or making friends with value types. And I find this fascinating. So Andy Matusak was a UI kit engineer, and he's now working at the Khan Academy. Um, and they've just released a an iPad app, um, maybe iPhone as well, uh, that is a, a Swift app and quite mm. a large code base. And so he's been talking a lot about Swift lately, obviously has used it a lot. And the basis of this video, basically I'm halfway through and already I've learned so much. And I feel like I need to go and now revisit all my Swift code. So 
in earlier episodes, I think I was wondering why I would use uh, structs and enums instead of classes. Yep. So I'm so used to sort of the, I guess, classical inheritance, you know, uh, Java and Objective-C where everything is a class, um, or at least in Java, everything's a class and in Objective-C. Most of my code, everything's a class. Everything that you create really is a class. Very yeah. rarely do you do enums and yeah. stuff. Um, but in Swift, obviously, uh, there are these new types like structs, which can have methods and enums, which can have methods. And so when I started using Swift, I'm like, well, how do I know which one to use when if they all kind of have the same capabilities? Like, are they completely interchangeable? Um, so I've kind of just stuck with classes because that's what I'm used to. Um, but this... Our presentation talks about the topic is controlling complexity. And one of the potential sources of complexity that he identifies is the idea of um, the mutability. So things that can be changed, um, it's hard to keep track of what's changing them. Uh, and he particularly has the idea of uh, user interfaces is a, a source of problem. Um, so you might have a model view controller architecture Right, where you've got a, uh, a model representing your domain of your app. So say let's go with people. We're doing an app about people and there's a person yep. object and it's got properties for name and last name or whatever. Yep. And you've got a view to display it. So you've got your storyboard with your UI labels or text fields or whatever um, and maybe an intermediary controlling layer that does some stuff as well. So you might think that your view is entirely separate from your model, like your model doesn't know anything about the view. You've mm-hmm. got that separation there. Mm-hmm. But his point is that um, you never really know if your model objects are mutable. You never really know what's changed them. So it could be that you've written some controller code somewhere that works because one of the values of the model object it's dealing with is set to a, a certain value at the right time. And then suddenly it stops working because that model object's no longer set to the right value at the right time. And you don't really know why. And it could be that some UI code changed it right. somewhere else mm-hmm. in the app. And mm-hmm. you didn't, like that UI code is completely disconnected from this controller that is now broken. But the UI code set a value on the model and your controller had a reference to the same model object. And so suddenly the value it, it was expecting to be there is no longer there. And those sorts of errors, that sort of complexity he was saying is really hard to debug. And his proposed solution to that is using value types so structs where instead of sharing a reference to the same model object um there when you pass a reference it's not a reference you're passing you're passing the value so it's copied and so instead of having you know two different instances sharing the same reference to a model object uh, and potentially kind of treading on each other's toes uh, each one gets their own copy to deal with so basically if you default to value types for everything then you can, uh, the your code is less complex because you know that the copy you're dealing with, no one else has. There's no possibility that any of the values on it will change while you're using it. So, real world scenario, right? What happens if I've got a set, like I've got a preferences screen, mm-hmm. and I change preferences, and it should be updating a view somewhere? Like my preferences view allows me to select. If I'm previewing GIFs in Retina or standard display yeah, and I have some sort of class or struct or something that stores that that data about that preference, 
and what happens when I go back? Like, do I have to make a copy? Like, do I have to get that copy of that value, that object again, so I get that that new data? Like, how do I get that new data? So I'm only halfway through. Oh, God. But I imagine you'd pass it when you need it, right? Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, so I, I think this is part of this whole idea of functional programming as well, where instead of having an object that has state and methods that can modif- mutate the object state as well as returning things, um, you write all your functions so that they don't rely on the state of the class they're declared in. They might be declared in a struct. And they just take their parameters as arguments and do stuff with them and return a result. Mm-hmm. And then when you need to pass something in, you just pass it in again rather than relying on one okay. shared Okay, that breaks my head. It. The whole idea of classes is so, like, I come from, like, I mean, I, I came from, I learned about classes when PHP became object-oriented. So the whole idea of classes to me comes down to this idea that you want to have something that kind of isn't like an object has a state. Yeah, I'm with you. I, but it kind I, of, yeah, I, I'm finding this a new way to think about things as well. And um, as I said, I'm only halfway through, but so I don't, I want to watch the rest of it. And then I want to start thinking about it when I return to the Swift code that I'm writing, and I don't think I am going to rewrite the app that I just finished. It works. It's. I don't think there's anything broken about using classes. I mean, we've all been using classes in languages like Java and C Sharp and Objective C and PHP, whatever, um, for a long time. Uh, but I kind of am starting to understand some of the benefits. And whereas before, I thought it was completely arbitrary as to why you use a struct versus a a class. Now I understand that, okay, well, structs are value types so that when you pass them around, you're passing copies of them rather than yeah, okay. a shared reference. And that can simplify things. So, yeah. I, and I can see that that could be useful at times. I just, you know, there are times that I think maybe that that's not the way. But anyway, I don't know. I'm not, I, don't, I haven't watched the video at all. Yeah. Not even the first half of it. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's a good one. Indeed. It, he's actually a really good speaker as well. I am finding it incredibly entertaining. They, the examples he uses, he talks about a dog as being a reference type because you can't copy dogs. And you <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no. And when I tell you about a dog, I'm tell I'm communicating to you a reference to a dog. Like I'm using the dog's name, and you end up understanding the same dog that I understand. If I change a property of that dog, your understanding changes as well because it's the same dog. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He does it better than I do. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I yeah, got okay. it. Well, if you'd like to uh, read or watch any of the things that we've talked about today, then you can do that. Jump onto our website. We'll have show notes for you. Show notes. Woohoo. They are at mobilecouch.co forward slash 51 because that's the number of this episode. You can also send us an email. Uh, we would love it if you did so. Uh, you can send us uh, an email by jumping onto our website as well. That's mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Or you can email us the old school way, like the old school emails. When If you email hello at mobilecouch.co. You can also talk to us on Twitter. Jake is on Twitter as jmcmullen. That's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. Ben is Ben Trengrove, that's B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E, and I am Jelly Bean Soup. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been an amazing episode, as always. We'd, maybe not amazing to you, but it is amazing to us because we just love speaking to you, you see. 
So we look forward to speaking to you again in two more weeks' time. We will we will talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.